0: the April Pensions Podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Graham Wrightson, a partner in the pensions team and I have with me Naeem Noor, a senior associate in the team. Today we're going to talk about some of the key pensions law developments up to the end of April 2019, including points from the pensions regulator's annual funding statement, recent case law which has clarified the parameters of trustees' duties to a sponsoring employer, the government's approach, the introduction of collective defined contribution pension schemes, as well as additional disclosures that certain trustees will be required to make as of 6 April 2019. So first Naim, do you want to tell us something a bit about the pensions regulator's expectations?
1: Sure, thanks Grimm. Trustees and sponsors of defined benefit pension schemes should be aware of the Pensions Regulator's expectations set out in its 2019 Annual Funding Statement. The regulator notes that it expects all schemes to set a long-term funding target. This funding target will generally achieve funding at a level higher than where a scheme is fully funded on a technical provisions basis. Trustees need to be prepared to evidence that their short-term investment and funding strategies are aligned to allow the scheme to become fully funded up to the long-term funding target. In addition, the regulator continues to highlight that dividend payments should not be excessive relative to deficit reduction contributions. The regulator makes clear that it will intervene with schemes whose valuations do not reflect an equitable position relative to other stakeholders, regardless of sponsor covenant. The regulator would expect, for example, a weak sponsor who is unable to support the scheme to have ceased payment of all shareholder distributions. The Regulator also notes that the median recovery plan is seven years and schemes with strong covenants should have recovery plans which are significantly shorter than this. The Regulator will be engaging with schemes ahead of their 2019 valuations where it considers that recovery plans are unacceptably long. For more detail on the annual funding statement, please see our briefing on the topic published in March.
0: And for our next topic, the courts have provided guidance on a pension scheme trustee's obligations to a sponsoring employer. In the Keymed case, the employer brought proceedings against two of its former directors, who were also trustees of Keymed's main occupational pension scheme and of its executive scheme. Some years after the defendants had left its service, Keymed claimed that they had abused their position as directors and dishonestly breached their fiduciary duties. The case contained a number of allegations, but one key line of argument was that the defendants had subordinated Keymed's interests their own, thereby intending to cause loss by unlawful means. The judge was therefore required to consider the duties owed to Keymed by the defendants as trustees. It was noted that there was no authority directly considering the question of whether a pension scheme trustee owed a fiduciary or equitable duty to the employer sponsoring that pension scheme. The judge concluded that the duty of a trustee to act in the beneficiary's best interests could not be separated from the proper purpose of the trust itself. Subjecting trustees to a divided loyalty, for example by owing duties to both the beneficiaries and to the employer, was, as the judge put it, profoundly undesirable. In the judge's view, the critical point was that a fiduciary should serve only one master. The case is notable in reaching the conclusions to whether trustees owe fiduciary or equitable duties to a scheme sponsoring employer, and, perhaps surprisingly, there's remarkably little law on this point. The judge came to a clear conclusion that no such fiduciary duty to the employer exists, and that while trustees are entitled to have regard to the employer's interests, they should only do so where these do not conflict with their primary duty. And so, Naeem, what's been happening in the world of collective defined contribution?
1: Thanks, Graeme. Yes, on to the emerging world of collective defined contribution schemes, or CDC arrangements, as I'll refer to them. In its response to the consultation paper delivering collective defined contribution pension schemes, The government has set out its plans for introducing legislation to facilitate CDC schemes. In a CDC arrangement, contributions are invested in a collective fund. The income the member receives is then based on the value of his or her contributions to the fund, but this is not guaranteed. Benefits fluctuate to ensure that the total value of benefits credited to each member is equal to the total value of the scheme's assets. The government is committed to legislating for CDC schemes and has stated that it will draft fresh legislation to achieve an appropriate framework. It will make clear that CDC schemes are money purchase benefits. The apparent intention behind this being to provide assurances that it is not employers who will ultimately be liable for any shortfall. The government will initially look to legislate for CDC schemes set up by single or associated employers to be based on the model agreed between the Royal Mail and the Communication Workers' Union. Much like master trusts, an authorisation regime for CDC schemes will be established. CDC schemes will therefore have to be authorised before they can begin to take on contributions. This process and ongoing supervision more generally will be undertaken by the pensions regulator and is still in the throes of development.
0: And one final short topic for this month's podcast is a reminder that since 6 April 2019, trustees of most occupational defined contribution pension schemes are now required to disclose, upon request, certain information about pooled funds, specifically regarding the international securities identification number in relation to collective investment schemes. The information provided cannot be more than six months old and must be provided within two months of the date the request is made. Fortunately for schemes, a member can only request information once in a six-month period. And that's all for this month's podcast. Additional topics and further detail on the subjects discussed can be found in our April snapshot and in our briefing entitled Dividends, Recovery Plans and Long-Term Funding Targets, which we sent out in March. Alternatively, you can contact your usual Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team contact. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative and don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud or on the Stevenson Harwood website.